morning, church. Am I on? Okay. Um, we're going to continue today in uh, Peter's message of encouragement to those being persecuted. The message uh, for those in ancient times are the same message that we need to hear today. So, you know, Peter was uh, maybe my favorite apostle because um, oftentimes he had foot and mouth disease like many of the rest of us do and like I, I have for sure. And God has shown us that if he can use somebody like Peter and turn him into the man and the preacher and the man of God he was, he can use us too. So anyway, we're in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And I'll be reading from the ESV version. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for, for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keeping love one another, keeping above all, keeping keep loving one another earnestly, since you love your love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, and each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as God, good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God, that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Will you join me in praying? Tell me, Father, Lord, we just come before you as your church, Father, giving you all glory. You are our God. You are our Lord. But we just thank you for all the blessings you bestow upon us, Lord. We pray for your church. We pray for all of those in your church that are suffering either health issues or emotional issues or marital issues or uh, whatever's going on. Well, we just pray that you give us the courage to push through and to put you always in the forefront. Lord, we thank you for Mark and his teaching today. We ask you to anoint his words that you may speak loudly through him and that we pray for open hearts and minds that we might take what you have for us today and in and just uh, incorporate it into our daily lives. And so, Lord, we just, uh, like I said, give you all glory and praise, and we just pray this to your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Before we get started this morning, um, just before I came up, Hannah came and gave me a report on the Christmas boxes, and it looks like between what she collected at school and what the church has donated, we're up to right around 750 boxes. So that's significantly over Hannah's goal. And that's 750 children around the world who will receive hope and joy and, most importantly, the gospel of Christ. So give yourselves and Hannah another hand. Good job. <clears throat> so I titled my message this morning, Make the Best of the Rest of Your Time. And as we look at Peter, we see that 
Peter's letter to the exiles has several themes woven through it, almost like threads woven through a tapestry. One of these themes is how believers ought to live in the, in the exile, or what Jackie likes to refer to as the believer's code of conduct. Another theme is the suffering of believers. And I think partly because of Peter's place in history, a time of terrible persecution of the church, he comes back to this again and again. The main idea of the letter could be summed up as trust and obey, especially in the face of suffering. A third theme uh, that Peter returns to over and over again is the importance of time. He is keenly aware that we are living in the end times and that we should be watchful with patience and endurance. Peter had a great deal to say about time, and I imagine an awareness of his own impending martyrdom had something to do with this emphasis. If you remember, Jesus, after restoring Peter from his denial, foretold Peter's death. John 21, 18 and 19 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The amazing thing to me is that after that prediction, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And Peter doesn't hesitate. He follows, knowing what's in store for him in the future. And so we don't know the exact circumstances, but about three months after the great fire of Rome, in around July 64 AD, Peter was arrested and executed by crucifixion, as Jesus had foretold. Church history says that Jesus was uh, crucified upside down at his own request. Because Peter, what did, I, did I say Jesus? Peter. <laughs> because... He didn't feel it was, he was honorable enough to be crucified the same way as Jesus. In 2 Peter 1, 3, 13 through 14, Peter shares this awareness. He says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter reminds us that time is short. He wants us to know how to live, and he wants to remind us again and again how to live in the time that we have left. If a person really believes in eternity, then he will make the best use of time. If we are convinced that Jesus is coming, then we will want to live lives that are prepared. Whether Jesus comes first or death comes first, we want to make sure the rest of the time counts for eternity. This is where he begins chapter 4. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that, pa that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. There's a poem about time that I've often heard, and perhaps you've heard it too. I don't know who wrote it, but it goes like this. It says, when as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. And later, as I older grew, time flew. Soon I shall find while traveling on, time gone. Time is a precious gift that God has given to us. And we all have the same exact amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day. I figured out how many minutes and seconds that was, but now I can't remember. But we all have the same number of minutes and the same number of seconds. And when they're gone, nothing you can do can recover a single one of them. And yet, I think particularly in this country, 
We waste time. We have phrases like killing time. We don't stop to think that the time we're losing is time that we can't regain. And so I decided I would look up a few more quotes about time. And here are some of the ones I like the best. This one says, time is what we want most, but what we use worst. Here's one that's a little more upbeat. It says, the bad news is time flies. The good news is you're the pilot. And this one I really like because I, I find that it's extremely truthful. Time is a great healer, but a poor beautician. And then my very favorite quote about time ever in the whole world is this. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Gandalf. And that's really the question, isn't it? What do we do with the time that we have left? We can't do anything about the time that's gone. It's gone. And so we have to ask ourselves, what do we do? with the time that we have left. And in this chapter, Peter tells us what to do with the time that has been given to us. He gives us four, uh, four things in particular, and the first one is we must cultivate the attitude of Christ. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Therefore, of course, points back to what Peter wrote in chapter 3. That at the cross, Jesus endured the greatest suffering possible. The divine wrath of God poured out on him the just for the unjust. It was also at the cross that he achieved his greatest triumph. And frankly, our greatest blessing, conquering sin and death and the powers of hell. The cross is the ultimate proof that suffering can lead to victory over evil and death. We don't like to suffer. We like to be comfortable. We like to be safe. But suffering can lead to victory for us in this life. The scripture says we must arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves is a military term, meaning literally to arm yourself with weapons. It's a picture of preparing for battle. Now, I think that we as believers need to remember that we are living and operating and, and dwelling every minute of every day in occupied territory. And it's not like we're safe here in Buell. It's not like the enemy is in the next nation or the next state. He's not in Twin Falls or Pocatello. The fact of the matter is, he's in all of those places. And yes, he's right here in Buell. It's easy for us to look around the nation and say, the craziness that we see hasn't quite reached us here yet. But let me tell you, it's coming. It's already here, not in the, to, the, to the degree that we see around the rest of the country, but the thoughts and the, and the ideals and the progressive thinking is here. And it's going to get worse and worse as time goes on. In fact, not only are we living in occupied territory, but we are literally hemmed in on all sides. We are surrounded. There is no place for you to turn where the enemy is not. There are no safe zones. There are no hiding places. We are surrounded and we must be prepared for battle. The battle is going to get worse as time goes on. I hate to be the one to stand up here and give you this kind of news. But all you have to do is open your eyes and look and you'll see that it's the truth. But here's the good news. When Christ suffered in the flesh, he died. God made him to be a sin and a curse for all who believe. In Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And on the cross, Jesus felt the full force of sin's evil. 
as an innocent man. But on the cross, he gained salvation for all who would believe and everlasting honor and praise from all who will live with him eternally. And so because of that hope, because we have this great hope of salvation, we have this forgiveness, we have this debt, frankly, that we owe to Christ, we must arm ourselves with the same purpose. And that purpose is the willingness to die in obedience to God. Death is the ultimate suffering, and it's the ultimate reward. Because Peter tells us here, believers who have died have ceased from sin. Now, I want you to think about that for just a minute. I would dare say that there's no one in this room who has ceased from sin. I certainly haven't. And I am looking forward to the day when sin has no power over me, when there is no temptation for me. I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting that battle. I'm tired of seeing the effects of sin in the world around me. Peter here is encouraging us that death means we cease to struggle with sin. And there are other ways to die besides physical death. One of them, and a very important one, I think, is death to self. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Death to self means submitting to the authority of Jesus. When we refuse that submission, we are taking Jesus off the throne, and the person who ultimately ends up on the throne is you. You are taking Jesus off of the throne that he rightfully deserves, and you are taking it for yourself. You become God in your own mind. And that's not a good place for us to be because we don't have the ability to live the lives that God calls us to live on our own. Too many believers today cling to the lordship of self. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. When you refuse to submit to the authority of Christ, it is sin. Our goal in life is to cease from sin. And we will not reach this goal completely until we die or until we're called home when the Lord returns. But this should not keep us from trying. You see, here's the thing. God knows that we cannot be sinless. He knows that. But he does expect us to sin less. As we live our lives, we should be living in a trajectory of less and less sin as we move on and more and more trust and faith and obedience to Jesus. And I think it's important to note here that Peter did not say that suffering in and of itself would cause a person to stop sinning. Peter says it's suffering plus Christ in our lives can help us to have victory over sin. We are identified with Christ in his suffering and death, and therefore we can have victory over sin. As we yield ourselves to God and have the same attitude towards sin that Jesus had, we can overcome the old life and begin to live the new. So the second thing Peter teaches us, teaches us about what to do with the time we've been given is that we need to commit to do the will of God. We need to commit to do the will of God. Verse 2 says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. All disobedience, or excuse me, all sin, is disobedience to the will of God. Think about that. Doesn't matter how little the sin is, it doesn't matter who you've sinned against, it is all disobedience to the will of God. It's an act of rebellion by believers against Him. Psalm 51, 2 through 3 says, 
Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. One of my favorite preachers, excuse me, I need a drink. One of my favorite preachers, Paul Washer, asks in a sermon, do you know why sin has any power over you at all? And his answer is, because you love it. And think about that. Sin has power over you because you love it. And I think, since I'm being harsh, that I'll go one step further and say that it's because you love it more than you love God. Our goal must be to conform to God's will and to love him. If we truly hated our sin, if it completely disgusted us, then we would turn from it and turn towards God. Paul commands believers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's Romans 12, 2. Conforming to the world, however, results not in transformation, but in disobedience. It is the willful refusal to do what God commands. One day in heaven, believers will cease to sin. It will have absolutely no power, absolutely no attraction to us. And, you know, I'm going to say it again. I don't have a death wish, but I'm longing for that day. I am so tired of the world that we live in. Because of this, because it will have no power, no attraction to us, we should live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions. It is human passions. It, are, it is those desires within us that cause us to sin. Peter is telling believers to arm themselves with a commitment to do the will of God and to, and to abandon their former sins. The next obvious question, and... It's surprising how many times I've been asked this question is, well, but how do I know God's will for me? And I'm going to give you the short answer. It's in here. It's in here. God's will for you, for the church, for the world, is right here. It's knowable, and it's provable. Remember Romans 12, 2? It says, transform your mind in order to be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So many times people say to me, I don't know what God's will is for my life. You've got to start here. This passage gives an important progression. The child of God refuses to be conformed to the world and instead allows himself to be transformed by the spirit, by the word of God. And then his mind is renewed according to the things of God. And then he can know God's perfect will. As we seek God's will, we should make sure that what we're considering is not something the Bible forbids. For example, the Bible forbids stealing. Since God has clearly spoken on this issue, we know it is not his will for us to be bank robbers. Right? Thou shalt not steal. That means bank robbing is not a career for, for a believer. You don't even have to pray about that. Also, we should make sure what we're considering will glorify God and help us and others grow spiritually. And, and I'll be honest, knowing God's will is sometimes difficult because it requires patience. It's natural to want to know all of God's will at once. God, what do you want me to do with my life? God, which way should I go? Where should I turn? How should I deal with this circumstance? But that's not usually how he works. He doesn't usually lay out the whole plan for us to review 
and consider. He reveals it to us one step at a time. And each move is going to be a step of faith. And he allows us to continue to trust him. Honestly, my experience with God is that he shows me his will at the very last minute. Because it is at the very last minute that I can say, this is what God wants. It's not what I want. I'm far too likely to say in any given circumstance, this is what I want. And so God reveals his will for me almost always at the last minute. I've learned to wait till the last minute. Often, we want God to give us specifics. Where should we work? Where should we live? Who should we marry? What car should I buy? Where should I park? We get a little crazy with this sometimes, don't we? You see, God allows us to make choices. And if we are yielding to him, he has ways of preventing wrong choices. Acts 16, 7, 6 through 7 says this. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow. You see, when you are living in God's will, when you are reading his word, when you are seeking to be obedient to him, God has ways to stop you from doing the dumb things you want to do. So here's the thing. There is tremendous freedom in Christ and in the will of God. But how can you expect to hear his specific word for you when you don't know or follow his general revealed will in scripture? Let me ask that question again. How can you expect to hear his specific word for you when you don't know or follow his general revealed will in scripture? The answer is you simply can't. If you are not in the word, seeking to understand the word and obey the word, then you're not going to hear God if he even speaks to you at that point. If we are walking closely with the Lord and truly desiring his will for our lives, God will place his desires in our heart. The key is wanting God's will and not mine. It's a big key because my will is big. But my will is not bigger than God's. And when I choose to follow my will, I am sinning. And I am not trusting and, and obeying the word of God. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, it's when we delight ourselves in the Lord that he puts the desires of our heart into us, and then he will give them to us. Next, Peter tells us that we must change our past behavior. Verses 3 through 5 says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. These verses give a vivid picture of the tragic and devastating life of the unbeliever, a life that ultimately only ends in bondage and judgment. They are similar to several of Paul's descriptions of lost people. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul writes this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. 
but, and there's that little word that means so much, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen, hallelujah. I dare say that as we look at these lists, many of us can say such were some of us. Peter tells us that such a time has passed for us. We must change our past behaviors as we seek to cultivate the attitude of Christ and commit to do the will of God. Not only does Peter exhort us to close the book on our past sins, he tells us that we've had far more than enough time. He says we've had sufficient time in the past to practice those sins. Now, some of us, have practiced sin for a short time before coming to the Lord. Good for you. Praise God for that gift. Many of us have wasted a good part of our lives. I can tell you that personally, I practice sin in an effort to make it a perfection. I, I'm not proud of that, and I'm grateful that I've been taken out of that, but I have wasted a good portion of my life living in sin. Regardless, Peter says the time we spent sinning, whether it was a short time or a long time, is more than enough to have lived as the unsaved lives. Then he explains that sinners become so entrenched in their excesses that when they abandon them, their fellow sinners are surprised. The term flood of debauchery brings to mind a crowd of people madly racing towards sin, running downhill for fleshly pleasures, not thinking anything about anything else except what they want, what's going to satisfy their own lusts and desires, ignoring all the warning signs, headlong into sin. One commentator describes it as a euphoric stampede of pleasure seekers. I've been in that stampede. It doesn't end anywhere good. It's no wonder that when one of them sees the light and stops, old friends sometimes become enemies. These people who continue in their sin after you've stopped, they can't understand how someone could leave that life behind. And they feel guilty, to be honest, for continuing. The word malign literally comes from the Greek blasphemo. And it means to slander or defame or blaspheme someone or to speak evil of them. In Peter's time, true believers became unwilling to participate in these ungodly pastimes and civil ceremonies, some of which involved idol worship, temple prostitutes, child sacrifice, and swearing oaths to Caesar as God. Because of this, unbelievers were accused, or excuse me, unbelievers accused and blasphemed the believers. This maligning led to horrific persecution and torture of believers. We read in the Bible about some of this, being thrown into fire, uh, into lion's dens. Uh, Nero, who was... Uh, who was Caesar, who was emperor at the time of Peter, would literally dip believers in wax and set them up in his garden and light them on fire in order to light his gardens at night. Now, I'm sure that some of you have experienced persecution when you broke away, and maybe you've experienced slander when you broke away from the world and turned from your sins. But so far, praise God, the worst most Americans have suffered is angry words. We're moving into a time when you stand up for what's right, you're probably going to lose your job. It's happening all around us. In fact, one of, the, uh, one of the modern commentators that I follow, John Stone Street, says that we probably need to develop a theology of being fired because it is so important that we stand up for Christ that we be willing to lose in order to keep that stand. I believe 
that persecution in this country is about to be significantly turned up. And we need to be prepared. We really need to be prepared. We need to be prepared, and we should not be just surprised. We've been warned. But there's hope. Peter tells us that those who slander and persecute will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. <clears throat> those who persecute the church, the ones who have already died and the ones still living, will face judgment for their oppression. Paul describes this judgment in graphic terms. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, Paul writes, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of his might. <clears throat> Here on this earth, this battle, this battle of standing up for Christ, the, frankly, the battle of living day by day in a broken world by faith, the battle of bearing up under persecution, this battle is ours to fight, but we don't fight it alone. We fight it with the Holy Spirit within us. But we need to remember that justice and vengeance don't belong to us. They belong to God. As we cultivate the attitude of Christ, commit to do the will of God, and work to change our past behavior, we will begin to see our enemies as the lost and broken people that they are, blinded to truth, in need of prayer and compassion. Now, I've told you before that this is something I struggle with. I watch the news on the rare occasions that I watch the news, and I'm immediately angry at the things people are saying and doing. I'm learning to understand that those people are held captive, that they have not been freed, and that I need to pray for them. That my anger should not be directed towards them because we don't struggle with what? With flesh and blood, but we struggle with the spiritual powers. And so my anger needs to be directed towards the misinformers, towards the spiritual powers that teach things that are not true. And I need to pray for the people who promote abortion, for the people who go out and riot, for the people who live their entire lives as victims. I need to pray for those people. We must be patient towards the lost, even though we do not agree with their lifestyles or participate in their sins. After all, unsaved people are blind to spiritual truth and dead to the spiritual things of God. Blind and dead. In fact, our contact with the lost is important to them since we are the ones who bear the truth that they need. That's a hard thing to realize. It's a hard thing to grasp that the truth that I have is the truth that's needed by the people in the world who most annoy me. But it's true. And I need to be willing and ready and able to share that truth with them. So when unsaved friends attack us, this is our opportunity not to get angry, not to yell, not to hold up signs, but to pray for them and to witness to them. <clears throat> First Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. A couple of really important words in that passage. The first one is always. Not sometimes, not when you feel like it, not when you're in a good mood. Always. And the other important word is anyone. To give a, re to give a reason to anyone 
the worst sinner you have ever met in your life or your next door neighbor, someone you like. It's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to give a hope to anyone. That's the attitude of Christ. He didn't shun anyone, did he? He didn't push anyone away. He didn't say, your sin is too great for me, thank God. The unsaved may judge us, but one day, if they don't turn from their own sin, God will judge them. Now, I'm not saying that we should hope for this. Jesus didn't hope for anyone to be, to be sent to hell. He, Jesus said it was his desire that all would be saved. But we also need to recognize that that vengeance that we desire will ultimately be given to those people. It's not our place to, to do it. Vengeance and justice is not ours. It belongs to the Lord. So instead of arguing with these people, we should pray for them, knowing that the final judgment is with God. Peter reminds us that this was also the attitude that Jesus had. In 1 Peter 2, 23, Peter writes, When he was reviled, he being Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to, to him who judges justly hard thing to do, but it's what we're called to. Now let's take a look at verse 6. This is a passage that confuses a lot of people. <clears throat> and verse 6 says this. It says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So people are confused about this text because they often take it out of context. And we cannot interpret 1 Peter 4, 6 apart from the context of suffering. Otherwise, we will get the idea that there's a second chance for salvation after death. I can't tell you how many people have pointed to this verse and said this means that after you die, you get a second chance. Peter was reminding his readers of the Christians who had been martyred for their faith. They had been falsely judged by men, but now in the presence of God, they received their true judgment. Those who are dead could read those who are now dead at the time Peter was writing. The gospel is preached only to the living because there is no opportunity for salvation after death. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There is no opportunity for salvation after you die. This is a serious thing, folks. And there are people out there today who preach that you'll get a second chance that love conquers all, that God saves everyone, that there are multiple pathways to heaven. But scripture tells us otherwise. You get the opportunity now in this life, and after that it's done. It doesn't come again. Verse six could be paraphrased this way. There are people now dead physically, but alive with God in the spirit, who were judged by the world. But they heard the gospel before they died and they believed. They suffered and died because of their faith, but they are living with God. It is better to suffer for Christ and go to be with God than to follow the world and be lost. That's basically what that verse is telling. There's no connection between 1 Peter 4, 6 and 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 nor is there any suggestion of a second chance for the lost after death. And so unsafe people may speak evil of us and even oppose us, but the final judge is God. We may sacrifice our lives in the midst of persecution, but God will honor and reward us. We must fear God and not men. That's an easy thing to say. 
But when you're being made fun of and mocked and, and your job is threatened because you've made a stand for Christ, it's harder to, to, to bear up under that, isn't it? It's harder to not fear men and to fear God. But again, friends, that's what we're called to. We are called to fear God. We should fear the one who can take our soul and cast it into hell and not anything that mere man can do. While we are in these human bodies, in the flesh, we are judged by human standards. One day, we shall be with the Lord in the spirit and receive our true and final judgment and rewards. In verse 7, Peter comes back to the issue of time and he concludes this section with more instructions on the code of conduct. Verse 7 says, The end of things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Christians in the early church expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. You see, read this over and over again. And the fact that he has not returned, though, does not invalidate his promise. No matter what interpretation we give to the prophetic scriptures, we must all continue to live in expectancy of the return of Christ. The important thing is not when he comes, but that he will come. That we shall see him one day and stand before him. How we live and serve today will determine how we are judged and rewarded on that day. This attitude of expectancy must not turn us into lazy dreamers or zealous fanatics. Two extremes of prophecy. I find a lot of people who are just, they just, they're lazy dreamers. They just spin their minds about what they think prophecy means or they become zealous fanatics and the rest of the scripture just kind of takes a back seat. The phrase be sober means be sober-minded. Keep your mind steady and clear. Perhaps a modern equivalent would be Keep cool, man. Okay, maybe that's not modern anymore. Maybe it's chill, dude. That's probably outdated, too. I can't keep up with the cool kids. Actually, that's because I never was one of the cool kids. <clears throat> In any case, be sober-minded is a warning against wild thinking about prophecy that could lead to an unbalanced life and ministry. Often we hear of sincere people who go off balance because of an unbiblical emphasis on prophecy or a misinterpretation of prophecy. There are people who study prophecy and then set dates for the return of Christ, contrary to his warning. In Matthew 25, 13, Jesus warns, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Others claim to know the identity of the beast in Revelation 13. Others loudly proclaim the end of the world and what will cause that end. Now, I've read books written by sincere and scholarly men in which all sorts of wild claims were made. Second ice ages, solar flares, overpopulation, famine. And they end up only being embarrassed by these claims. If we are sober-minded, we will be intellectually sound and not off on a tangent because of some new interpretation of Scripture. We will also face things realistically and be free from delusions. The sober-minded believer will have a purposeful life and not be drifting, and he will exercise restraint and not be impulsive. He will have sound judgment, not only about doctrinal matters, but also about the practical affairs of life. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not suggesting that we not study prophecy or that we become timid about our interpretations or our thoughts on it. What I am suggesting is that we not allow ourselves to get out of balance because of an abuse of prophecy. Like all of the Bible, there is a practical application to the prophetic scriptures. And I think the biggest application of that is watch. 
Be ready. The time is coming. Don't be asleep. What Peter is teaching is simply this. If you want to make the best use of the rest of your time, live in the light of the return of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, he's coming. Peter also teaches we must be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. If our prayer life is confused, it's probably because our mind is confused. Self-controlled and sober-minded is the opposite of being drunk and asleep. We need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. As we come to the word, we need to trust in the Holy Spirit's leading. We need to listen to the faithful teachers of the, of the word. We need to strive to understand it as best we can. And I often wonder, as Peter wrote this, if he was thinking of his own failure of falling asleep in the garden when he should have been praying. An expectant attitude towards Christ's return involves a serious, balanced mind and an alert, awake prayer life. The test of our commitment to the doctrine of Christ's return is not our ability to draw charts or discern signs, but our thinking and our praying. If our thinking and our praying are right, our living will follow along behind that. Peter's code of conduct has, has before this taught about how we should live amongst the unbelievers. And in verses 8 through 11, he turns to our relationship with one another. Starting in verse 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If we really look for the return of Christ... If we really live our lives in the expectancy of his return, then we will think of others and properly relate to them. Jesus is not coming back just for me. He's not coming back just for you. He's coming back for all believers, and we need to think about the way we behave and relate amongst the brotherhood. Love for the saints is important. Peter says, above all, or before all. As we've seen in our recent studies, love is the badge of a believer in this world. Especially in times of testing and persecution, Christians need to love one another and be united in one spirit. The church in America is fractured. We need to stop that. We need to gather around the things that we agree with, the things that are clear, and we need to be united in one heart and one spirit. Peter tells us that this love should be earnest. The word earnest pictures a horse stretching out his neck and straining to run at full speed. It speaks of eagerness and intensity. It's not just a common, everyday kind of love. It's a love that acts. It's a love that moves. It's a love that sees. Christian love is something that we have to work at. It doesn't come natural to us. It's not a matter of an emotional feeling, although that's included, but it is a matter more of dedicated will. I have, as a believer, committed my life to love other believers. Christian love means that we treat others the way God treats us. Christian love is also forgiving. Peter quoted from Proverbs 10:12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love does not condone sin, for if you love someone, you will be grieved and, and sorry to see him sin and hurt himself or others. But it is self-evident that love tends to forgive the offenses of others. 
Commentators differ on how to interpret this expression, love covers a multitude of sins. And I read a lot of commentaries trying to figure this out. Some say it refers to God's love covering sins, while others say it describes believers who are lovingly overlooking each other's offenses. I actually kind of like that. Believers lovingly overlooking each other's offenses, not condoning them, but not gossiping about them. Not overlooking in the sense that the sin doesn't exist, pretending, but in the sense of not spreading it, especially around unbelievers. Either way, whether that covering comes from God or from man, Peter tells us that love covers sin. Our Christian love should not only be earnest and forgiving, but it should also be practical. We should share our homes with others in generous and uncomplaining hospitality. We should use our spiritual gifts in ministry to one another. In New Testament times, hospitality was a very important thing because there were very few inns and poor believers could not afford to stay at them anyway. Persecuted saints in particular would need a place to stay where they could be assisted and be encouraged and rest and protected. And finally, Peter tells us Christian love must result in service. Each Christian, Peter says, has at least one spiritual gift that he must use to the glory of God and the building up of the church. We are stewards of his gifts. Do you know what that means? That means that this, the gifts don't belong to us. God has given them to us to use in the way he tells us to use them. He has entrusted these gifts to us that we might use them for the good of his church. He even gives us the spiritual ability to develop our gifts and grow them and become better with them and to be faithful servants of the church. Now, oftentimes when we talk about gifts, people get all worked up and confused and I don't have a spiritual gift. Well, yes, you do. You have a gift. God has given you a gift. And there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts and both of them are equally important to the church. Not everybody is a teacher or a preacher, nor should everyone be. Scripture says teachers will be judged with a harsher judgment. But all of us can be witnesses for Christ. All of us can use our words to witness to others about what Jesus has done in our lives. And then there are those behind the scenes ministries that help make the public ministries possible. And let me just tell you, as a speaker, I so appreciate those behind the scene ministries, those people who clean the church, those people who take out the trash, those people who repair things, who repaint, who set up chairs, who take down chairs. Because without those people, none of this other stuff would ever happen. And so those behind-the-scenes ministries, they're not less important than the ministries that the public sees. They're probably more important. God gives us the gifts, the abilities, and the opportunities to use the gifts, and he alone must get the glory. And then finally, I just want to touch on the phrase oracles of God in 1 Peter 4.11. It does not mean, oracles of God does not mean that everything a preacher or a teacher says today is God's absolute truth. You look around and you're going to find lots of preachers who are speaking things that are totally opposed to the Bible. Human speakers are fallible. I'm sure that in the past, hopefully not today, but in the past I have stood up here and said things that were not right or clear or perfect. Whoever shares God's word must be careful about what he says and how he says it, and it must all conform to the scriptures. The phrase oracles of God refers to speaking from the scriptures. And so in closing today, I want to challenge you to consider Peter's teaching as you begin to go through your week this week, starting today. 
ask, are you cultivating the attitude of Christ? Are you committed to do the will of God? Are you changing your past behaviors? Are you following the believer's code of conduct? And then finally, I think we should all consider how long is the rest of your time? Only God knows. So don't waste it. Invest it by doing the will of God. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather together here in this place to uh, open your word and to study it and to discuss it and to see, to learn how to apply it in our lives and then to leave this place and actually begin that application. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in that because I also confess that I, we, most of us, all of us, are broken and messed up and struggle and have questions and concerns and fears. And we just ask, God, that you fill us with your spirit. It is truly our desire to glorify you in this place by living the way you have called us to live amongst each other and outside in the world. It is our desire, God, to glorify you above all else to be obedient to you above all else, to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. We need your help. We need your strength. We need your mercy and your grace. We are grateful for your love. We thank you, God, for your many blessings. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>